this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 139. We're recording on Thursday, January 7th, 2016, our first show of the new year. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I am here with Amanda Nelson while Jeff has the week off, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Hey, hey. Good morning, Ms. Nelson. Morning to you as well, Senor Oshinsky. I know. It's been like barely more than 12 hours since we last saw and spoke to each other. I know. <laughs> we went to see Star Wars last night. <laughs> the Force has awakened. My Force feels very awake this morning. It does. I'm alert. Mm-hmm. My Force is very alert. It's very good. We might be the last people on the planet to have gone to see Star Wars. Yeah, it's all right. I wore my uh, my nice nerdy dark side dress. And it, that has a picture of Darth Vader and Boba Fett and a stormtrooper on the front. It is most it excellent. Good. I was queen nerd of that theater. Yeah, I guess we can tell the people if you are also looking for queen nerd gear, Forever Twenty One. Oh yeah, that's that. Yeah, has a bunch yep. of it. That is the source of my nerdy gear. Yes, I have a lot of Kylo Ren feelings right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm still oh, new nice. to Star Wars. We just watched. Well, you were. We hung out over Christmas break together. You and I did, mm-hmm. and I finally saw The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. So I feel like I'm too new to Star Wars to like wear the gear. Yet. Nah, there's no rule. <laughs> I would very much like um, Poe's jacket. I, right? I will get yes. myself a Poe leather jacket and do. We'll do some want, chill cosplay. I want so I want Kylo Ren's weird like cape coat, black flowy thing. Yes, the bad um, guy. It's very. It's kind of like I was thinking about this last night. It's kind of like Neo's cape coat in the Matrix. Oh yeah. Except not as broy. <laughs> I feel like Neo's cape coat was the thing that every goth kid in 1999 wore. Look, it's not Neo's forever. fault that the goth kids liked his coat. That's true. <laughs> All right. Before we get rolling, we have a quick piece of follow-up. Several weeks ago, Jeff and I talked about a proposal that had been put forth by an internet engineer to use the code 451 as the error code to indicate when a website that you were trying to access had been blocked as an homage to Fahrenheit 451 and Ray Bradbury. And that has been approved uh, by hey. the Internet Engineering Steering Group, which is the group of engineers who help review and update the standards used on the internet. Internet. And so that is a thing that is happening. I suppose now if you are in a place or a country that censors internet content, it's possible that you might try to access something and get the error code 451. Uh, so cool. I think it's always cool to see literature come into modern technology and pop culture. That's a thing that exists in the world now. <laughs> is the Internet Engineering Steering Group one of those like secretly in charge of every aspect of your daily life and you just aren't aware of it kind of it's like, kind of groups it sounds like they update the standards of the internet I what does that mean I, I know i think i joked the first time we talked about it that like this should be the next dan brown novel like it Ooh. sounds like the internet illuminati yes like, it does right like the internet feels so democratic in some ways but like somebody has to be making the decisions about what goes up um, and i don't know anything about it 
Right. But the Internet Engineering Steering Group does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they do. Yeah, I need a book about this. Someone please write me a thriller about (laughs) this group of Internet engineers. Illuminati for 2016. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Well done. Okay. Before we go any further, we want to thank our first sponsor this week. It's This Is Where It Ends by Marika Nikjump. Uh, This is an explosive, emotional, page-turning debut about a high school that is held hostage. Um, And the book is told from the perspective of four teens, each who have their own reason to fear the boy with the gun. At 10 a.m., the principal of Opportunity High School in Alabama finishes her speech. She's welcoming the entire student body to a new semester and encouraging them to excel and achieve. I'm sure we've all been party to speeches like that from principals. Uh, at 10.02 a.m., the students get up to leave the auditorium for their next class. At 10.03, the auditorium doors won't open. And then at 10.05, someone starts shooting. Uh, this is certainly a timely topic. Gun violence across the U.S. is a constant point of discussion in today's news cycle, and for very good reason, because it's a constant problem. Uh, This book features a diverse cast of characters. There are LGBT students, students with different racial and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds. And the whole story takes place over the course of 54 minutes in real time from these four students' perspectives. Uh, It's harrowing but hopeful. And the author, Marika Nikjump, is an executive member of We Need Diverse Books. Uh, So lots of interesting points here. Again, the title is This Is Where It Ends by Marika Nikjump and It is available wherever books are sold. We'll have a link in the show notes for you as well. So thanks to them for sponsoring. Okay. We're going to start this show (laughs) with one of the more cuckoo banana pants stories that I think we've ever had on this podcast. And as Jeff joked on Twitter the other day, this is our early front runner for the turkey of the year for 2016. I will be cautiously surprised if anything outweirds this. I don't know how you could possibly outweird this. By the end of the year. Because we've seen similar kinds of things from what we're about to talk about. We had the story last year about Kathleen Hale, the young adult author who tracked down people who gave her negative reviews and stalked them, which that's yeah. that's like creepy. This is... Just straight-up internet weirdness, a self-published author has posed as a Penguin Random House publicist, essentially has catfished book bloggers to get reviews. Young ones, like teenagers. Yes, yeah, well, young adult bloggers, because she wrote a young adult book, and many of her victims were minors. So she, as a byproduct of this, now has has obtained, like, home address information from a bunch of people who are under the age of 18. This is so. Okay, so book... I have so many questions. Right. Uh, the blogger that broke the story, or at least the blogger whose story about it was first on my radar, is John at bookishantics.com. Uh, he says that a woman who was calling herself Corinne Rosanna Catlin has been contacting bloggers and masquerading as a publicity assistant. He originally thought the emails were sketchy. They were coming from a Gmail address, but he thought that she was a new employee and wasn't perhaps familiar with... With the proper etiquette for approaching bloggers. And basically, he uh, he acknowledges in the intro to his post, and again, we'll have a link in the show notes, uh, that there were some red flags for him, but he was excited about the prospect of rekindling his relationship with Penguin Teen. And so he decided to overlook those things. So she contacts him and says, my name is Corinne. I'm a publicity assistant at Penguin Random House. Our nerdy intern young adult book department has been brainstorming ways to draw attention to our new titles through social media. 
Anyway, I noticed that you've got some good Amazon and book blog reviews. Would you be interested in reviewing a book a month or less in exchange for receiving free advanced reader copies from Penguin Random House? If you're interested, I'd love to hear from you. She signs the email, Corinne Rosanna Catlin, and then she gives him her work email and a school email address. Those are blacked out, so Mm, we can't see what they are. But that's already kind of interesting that you're not just working from the address you're working for. So they have a back and forth about what John might be interested in, uh, which kinds of titles. And then John gets a box in the mail that has a Penguin House, Penguin Random House label and a letter that has the Penguin Random House, Penguin Young Readers logo Logo. on it. Like this looks like real letterhead. Yeah. He gets one of the arcs that he requested and a random adult book from a Penguin imprint and a strange-looking indie title, he says. And I think in this case, he's using indie uh, synonymously with self-published. The YA book from his list, the one that he had, resp- had, that he had requested, a galley of, had a Thrift Books sticker on it. Uh, <laughs> so she bought it and mailed it to him. <laughs> right. And he says, I'm confident that Corinne bought the arc I wanted online. And this was all a ploy to make bloggers review her novel, Spectacolo, by Christine Catlin. So the letter, there's a picture of the letter he got. And it says, uh, here are some arcs for you. The first priority is Spectacolo or Spectacolo. I don't know how you pronounce this word. That's mm. not a word. A title we are taking on from Sylvestri Books, which is a vanity publishing, small press thing for its paperback printing in June. We would love to get some chatter going about this title. It should be a quick read. The other title is, here's the title, which I think was on your list, Happy Reading. So she sent him the thing he requested that she apparently purchased online. And then she sent him a copy of her book and said that her book was the priority. She had a Twitter account with 5,000 followers that claimed she was a corporate communications assistant at Penguin Random House. That Twitter account has since been deactivated, but there are screenshots of it. Uh, There is evidence of her posting on a Gmail help forum um, saying that she's reached the maximum amount of emails you can send in one day. Um, And she's asking Gmail how to get around that because she's sending, quote, a million kajillion emails for work trying to sort out who gets advanced reader copies. And someone from Google tells her, like, sorry, there's no other option. You have to stay within Google's guidelines. The post has been updated a couple times over the course of the last few days. Um, Penguin Random House is aware of it. Their legal department is now involved. It is unclear whether or not this person actually ever did work for Penguin Random House. There's been no... Uh, statement about that yet from anyone official. But apparently this same person was sending emails earlier this week from a Penguin Random House account um, saying that telling John at Bookish Antics that the post is confusing and harmful. Uh, And she's also been asking for his phone number because she wants to give him a call. (laughs) No, honey. So how, how did she get a Penguin email address? I don't know. Like, I'm afraid to dig too far into this because I just binge-watched Making a Murderer and I (laughs) think that I'm a detective now. Is she... So I can't tell if she is actually a publicity assistant or maybe, like, an intern or something if she has a Penguin address and she was just using their letterhead and using, like, their time to promote her own book. Yeah, I I think it's possible maybe she was a Penguin Random House intern or she is an intern or a publicity assistant, so she would have access 
to some of the materials. And then, I mean, that seems more believable to me than that she just invented being a, like, that's so elaborate to try and get somebody to read your book. Right. I mean, the whole thing is so elaborate. Like, I would guess she knew, I mean, she obviously has to know she's doing something sneaky. Sure. Here. And she Well, she doesn't use her real name. Right. And she sent the first email addresses from a Gmail account, not a Penguin Random House account. So if she has had one all along, she was apparently, it looks to me at least, taking steps to like not be sending these shady emails through her official work account. Because if you have ever received email from someone at Penguin Random House, sometimes they come with those notices at the end about privacy. And if you work for any big corporation, you have to know it's possible that your emails would be read, you know, by someone at some point. Um, So maybe she was trying to get around that. But like, clearly, I mean, it's kind of a brilliant idea if you could pull this off. (laughs) If you changed your name, like what? Obviously, she sent this book out to these people with her same last name and her first name only slightly changed. Like, it's so, if you're going to do the thing, do the thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's what, like, I don't, okay, let me be clear. No one should do this. Yeah, no, 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 no. Absolutely <laughs> like, not. If you were a publishing employee who also had a book to publicize, and you wanted to be shady, which you shouldn't because that's bad. Yes. You could, Especially with minors. Come you on, could come up with a good way to include your book in legitimate publicity mailings. But this would also seem to indicate to me that she doesn't have access to the galleys that she's claiming to have access to because it looks like she bought them online. Right. So the whole thing is just fishy. But she's like, you know, if you're going to do the thing, at least do it well, I guess. Yeah, like if you're going to crime. <laughs> right. It takes, it just, this is very gutsy to me, like to think that you could do this thing and that a bunch of bloggers who live and work on the internet and are smart people in general would, like, they're not going to figure it out. <laughs> also, that you're, if she doesn't work for Penguin Random House at all, she's committing fraud. <laughs> I would. wonder what Penguin's going to do, because I know this post says that, like, Penguin has been notified and is looking into it or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I if know. she actually does work for Penguin Random House, I would guess this is a fireable offense. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. I can't imagine what a fireable offense would be if this is not it. And if she doesn't work for Penguin Random House, then she's been representing herself as an employee of Penguin Random House, which is factually would be in that case factually untrue. <laughs> it's I just what <laughs> like what? Uh and I I think this is, it has to be frustrating for other self-published authors who have invested a lot of time in learning, you know, how the blogosphere works and how internet publicity works. And they are responsible for doing all of their own PR. And for every, you know, this is a one bad apple situation. There are many self-published authors who know what they're doing, but we continue to see examples like this. And let me say there is bad behavior from traditionally published authors all the time. And we talk about Mm -hmm. it on this show. Um, But since self-published authors don't have access to the resources that traditionally published authors have, they often, you know, might, they often might feel desperate. And sometimes the desperation expresses itself in really ugly ways. And I think it's unfortunate every time one of these things happens that it uh, that it probably feels to the community of self-published authors like this reflects badly on all of them. Yeah. I just I just can't imagine sitting in a desk somewhere and being like, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to ask a 16-year-old for their home address. That's a great idea. Right. There's no way this could go badly for me. If you're the parent of any of these bloggers, these like imagine like a 14-year-old young adult blogger and you're finding out about this. For real, I would, man, oh man, I would have words. Uh-huh. <laughs> so many words. Like and I would guess that if all of these allegations come out to be true or whatever, like clearly this is not 100% above board. However this comes out, I would guess that this person either didn't think about or thought about but chose to ignore or not fully comprehend exactly how bad, wrong, potentially illegal the behavior was. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So don't do this. (laughs) Please don't ever pretend to be a publicity assistant and catfish minors or anyone ever. Ever. just not... Uh, you know, there are ways. I mean, like, there are blogs out there that review, specifically review, into, like, self-published books. Mm-hmm. There are ways that you can pitch bloggers that, is, that uh, isn't creepy and, and ways that are effective. Sure. And there, they're easy you, to find, well, these and, ways. <laughs> yeah, there's a point in this post as well that um, it looks like some bloggers have been teaming up to do some more research about this author. Uh-oh. And that it, it, it appears that some of her Goodreads reviews might be fake as well, or they're the kind of overly fawning reviews that can indicate possible fakeness. Um, But you can get actual Goodreads reviews from people. Goodreads has a giveaway program, and you don't have to pay to give your book away. You just have to supply the book to winners. (laughs) And you don't have to buy other people's ARCs to send out with your book as like a cover. It's just like, what would have happened if John at Bookish Antics had requested a penguin young adult galley that she didn't have. I guess actually she gave him a list of the titles. So she probably bought some stuff online and said, here are the things that I've got. And didn't think to take the thrift book sticker off y'all. I know. <laughs> Come on. I need, I need a, I need a better class of like f- criminal here. <laughs> I don't know if this is really like a crime, but I need, I, think, I need more effort. Yeah. There's it. like potential crime stuff. I guess. It's, I don't know. And I guess also if you're a blogger, especially if you're just starting out or if you're, you know, in the game looking for books to review, don't respond to emails from people who claim to be professionals but don't have a professional account. <laughs> like this is by no means John's fault or the fault of any no. of the bloggers who were tricked by Corinne. Uh but, you know, keep your antenna up. So that's bizarre. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's a bizarre thing that started our year on the bookish internet. Uh, and where do you want to go next? We have a bunch of like, it's like a potpourri week this week. I want to talk about the parents calling the cops on these kids. Oh, honey. I think this is just so ridiculous. Everything is ridiculous today. Tell me your story, Amanda. So here's my story. So about two weeks ago, well, this happened around Christmas, so probably like three weeks ago, um, parents in Idaho, in a school district in Idaho, removed Sherman Alexie's book, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, from the 10th grade reading curriculum, <clears throat> which in and of itself isn't very surprising. The book is like banned constantly. If you're not familiar with it, it's a YA novel about a Native American teenager who decides to attend high school um, in all, the all-white high school off of the, his reservation. So there's lots of stuff about race and whatever. Anyway, um, 
there's like sexual things in it, like once one mention of a sexual thing, but it gets banned a lot. So students who were annoyed that a couple of parents had been vocal enough to get the book removed from the curriculum started a petition to have the book reinstated and the school refused. So a local bookstore, an independent bookstore in Idaho, heard about this and started a crowdfunding campaign to buy each of the 350 kids who signed the petition a copy of the book. And it worked. <laughs> so Woo-woo, good job. Uh, yeah, go, good job, Indie Bookstore. I guess Rediscovered Books is the name of the, the independent bookstore. So they distributed all except 20 of the books of the copies to the teenagers who came to claim them. But um, a couple of parents who were so angry that the students went out of like on their own and got a copy of the book that they called the police <laughs> on them and told the police that they were concerned about teenagers picking up a copy of a book without their parents' permission. Oh, my So gosh. the cops had to go out. The police. The police. The police <laughs> had to take their time and go out to this bookstore to investigate teenagers picking up books. Books that are published with the intention of being for a young adult audience uh-huh. that don't have a content warning or come wrapped in brown paper. So... Thankfully, the police got there and had no idea what was going on or why they had been called and just left because it's so ridiculous. They were confused about why um, they had been sent out there and they just let the distribution of the books continue as planned because obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Hachette, which is the publisher of the book, heard about what was happening and sent the bookstore another 350 copies of it to give out to teens who want one, any teen who wants one. Can just but go I get just one. <laughs> so much about this I love. I love that the teenagers organized this by themselves. Essentially, they like teamed yeah. up with a local bookstore and organized a way to get the book, despite the fact that a handful of parents who were too uptight um, to deal with real life didn't want wanted to speak for every student in this school. Uh, so I love that. I love that someone called the police. I just like. <laughs> I want to send these kids who organized the thing with the indie bookstore each, like, I don't know. We can't send them whiskey because they're underage. But I want to do, like, the, like, I want to buy them each a soda or an ice cream cone. We should send them that make reading great again hat. Oh, we should. (laughs) I would like to send them something to say, you are awesome and this gives me more hope for the future. Like, the kids might be all right, Amanda. I think think they're going to be okay. The adults, however... (laughs) Not if, all right. I have to say, if I live in Mer- in the Idaho school district of Meridian and my tax dollars are going f- to police getting called to investigate kids buying a book that is intended for people their age, <laughs> I, I am not riot. pleased. No, no. And I'm so happy that they, the police responded the way that they did. Like, I mean, I don't on. know what other option they would have had. Obviously, no law was being broken and like... The kids weren't doing anything illegal or even suspicious or like, you know, they were reading right, a book. Like, right. how is that also, possibly like disobeying your parents is not illegal and disobeying someone else's parents is definitely <laughs> not exactly. illegal. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. What? 
That is the kind of police state I want to live in. One where cops don't care. Right. Like, the only thing that would make this better is if the cops had, like, stayed and handed the books out. Yeah, or, like, started reading it out loud to the kids or something. Right. I want to see the press release with, like, the Meridian chief of police or the press conference where he's like, so our officers were called to this thing. (laughs) Kids were buying books. I, I might have even liked it more if whoever had called the cops had been, like, charged with some version of wasting their time. Is that a thing? Like, oh, wasting police resources or something like that? Yeah, I mean, if you call 911 for a thing that's not actually a thing, like, if you call 911 with a made-up problem mm-hmm. and they get to your house and, like, you say that someone has fallen down the stairs and no one has fallen down the stairs, you can be charged with something, I believe. That would be funny. Yeah, someone should do this. <laughs> I mean, what a this is just like the 2016 is off to a kooky start. <laughs> I cannot imagine being the person who calls the cops on teenagers reading a book. Like I can't I can't wrap my head around caring even a little about this. Like I just like get how a hobby. Yeah, just how entitled do you have to feel to call the police because some kids in your community are buying a book that without their parents' permission, there's nothing associated, whatever. Like now we're just running in circles about how absurd this is, but this is absurd. It is run in circles. <laughs> absurd. And it's not even like a book that their parents don't want them to read. It's a book that you don't want them to read. I just can't. Whatever. Okay. Whatever. Okay, whatever. Before we, <laughs> Moving on. Before we move on, we'll thank our next sponsor this week. Harry's is back. Uh, it's a new year. It's 2016. We have a fresh start. You can make some resolutions. A really excellent resolution to make, especially, you know, if you're thinking about saving money or just being smarter with your spending in 2016 is to stop overpaying for a great shave. Uh, if you are buying your razors at the drugstore or the grocery store or wherever, really, you've either had to have someone like unlock them for you because razor blades are so ridiculously expensive, or you've probably had sticker shock. I know that I had a moment a few years ago where I was like, I am paying $24 for four razors <laughs> like to remove hair from my legs. This is crazy town. Yeah. <laughs> Harry's is here for you. Uh, you go to harrys.com. They are a shaving company that has both amazing quality and low prices. Their blades have five or their cartridges have five blades on them. They're German engineered. When Harry's discovered these blades, they liked how this stuff worked so well that they bought the factory. They provide a close, comfortable shave. You won't get cuts or razor burn. I can vouch for this. I have tried the Harry's products. I've been using them for a while now. It's much less expensive uh, than buying your razor blades basically anywhere else. And the quality is really excellent. And Harry's will give you a full refund if you're not happy. Because Harry's owns the factory, you're getting the factory direct prices. They've cut out the middleman. These razor blades ship right to your door. So you not only don't have to pay the crazy high price, you don't even have to leave your house. You don't have to remember that you're out of blades or that you're on your last blade and you have to go and buy some soon. It's a recurring subscription. They will just show up once a month, which I am a big fan of. Harry sells their blades at half the price of the leading brand. Over 1 million customers have already made the switch and thousands of people are signing up every day. 
you can be one of them. When you go to harrys.com, you'll find out how easy it is to order online. You just put in a little bit of information. You select the package that you want. You In the first time around, you'll select a razor handle, and there are a couple different options, and you'll select a type of blade, and there are a few different price points for those as well. And then they have some shaving products that you can choose from. You don't need to pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades, or in my case, $24 for four blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com. Their starter set is an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, which is bonkers good. I really, really <laughs> like it, and three razor blades. Harry's doesn't like to discount because their prices are already really low, but we like you guys, and so we got a special offer for you. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code BOOK. So stop paying for a great shave. Start your new year off right. You'll save money and you'll be smooth. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter the code BOOK at checkout. Thanks again to Harry's for sponsoring the show. I can totally get behind products that make my life better in multiple ways, and especially when I don't have to leave the house. <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> it's really the leaving the house thing. So we've been following celebrity book club news. That's a thing we do. We do. And we've talked about how Zuckerberg's book club didn't really go anywhere. We found out yesterday that Emma Watson, Hermione herself, mm. is starting a feminist book club. I am so here for this. I feel like Jesse Spano in the like, I'm so excited, I'm so scared <laughs> sense. Why are you so scared? Well, I mean, so Emma Watson, we haven't seen any like missteps from her, but she has promised that she'll include Taylor Swift or she'll invite Taylor Swift and J.K. Rowling to her feminist book club. And Taylor Swift, I adore, but we've seen some moments of like white feminism from Taylor oh, yeah. Swift. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm super excited because Emma Watson does really interesting advocacy work. And she made that great speech before the UN last year that went viral for good reasons. And she's doing a lot of interesting work about helping men understand feminism, uh, which I think is fascinating and important. And I want that work to be done well. Um, I hope it's intersectional. <laughs> That's all I want. I but feel like it will be. I think... Um because she does all of this work for women in the UN, she's got as far as I can, as far as I've seen so far, a, um, a really international take mm -hmm. on feminism. It's not just like white Western, you know, white British or white American um, stuff. So I, I've got, I've got her, and she does talk. She did say on Twitter that bell hooks will be on the reading list. Yeah, that's true. So that's nice. I mean, that's only one woman of color, but. Yeah, and she's asked for, when she tweeted it, she was just saying she's going to start a feminist book club. And so far, she's only brainstormed feminist book club and Emma Watson book club. And she needs a name. She needs a, a better name than yeah. that. So if you've got ideas. There was someone, somebody tweeted her, um, Hermione's army. <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, Vulture did. Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, I've seen feminist, like F-E-M-M-A with her name in <laughs> book club. Too many. <laughs> yeah, there are um, some interesting, funny suggestions. Um, fun coven times I like. <laughs> I am, yes, I will join any book club with the word coven in it. <laughs> oh, you're an easy sell that way. Literary squad goals. <laughs> <laughs> I think this has a lot of potential to be great. And yeah. I would think it's probably going to be better. I mean, it's a low bar to be better than the Zuckerberg book club, but I think Emma Watson can far surpass that. 
I wonder how she's going to run it. Like, is it going to be on Twitter? Hmm, interesting. Or maybe it'll be like, I think it's hard to run an actual discussion online, as we've seen a million times. But maybe it'll be like she'll pick things and just people will read them. Hmm, yeah, maybe. But Zuckerberg style. If J.K. Rowling participates in Emma Watson's feminist book club and they like tweet about what they're reading together. Shut it down. Can the internet even handle that? Shut down the internet. Are we strong enough? I don't know if I, I don't know. I don't know if my joy, my joy overfloweth at the thought. It really does. And I, now I'm thinking about other celebrity feminists that I want to see have a book club. And I met, like the Nicki Minaj Beyonce book club. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it just needs to be a thing. And, I, oh, that, and, I think that would break the internet, that right they there. They can call it Hey Readers, What's Good? <laughs> can, can like the logo just be a picture of Miley Cyrus looking really scared? <laughs> Hey, readers, what's good? Amanda, sometimes we crack us up. <laughs> we tickle me. <laughs> oh, now I'm so amused. Anyway, good on you, Emma Watson. It's great when cool bookish people turn out to be even more and cool, more cool and bookish than we thought. I'm going to watch this with great interest. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, let's see. We got another quick piece of follow up. Um, Jeff and I talked like a month or two ago about there being these this bizarre legal argument um, about the copyright on Anne Frank's diary, and someone wanted to keep it in copyright. Her the uh, the estate that manages the copyright there wanted to keep Anne Frank's diary in copyright rather than releasing it into public domain at the time it was supposed to be released into public domain, using the argument that her father Otto, who edited the diary, was actually a co-author and uh, they were saying that it was substan- that the book was substantially changed by Frank's editing that it wasn't actually just her story it was Anne and Otto's stories and the argument meant that editors were for copyright purposes co-authors which would mean that virtually all published authors the corporations that published them would have a claim over their books, even after the writer's contract with the publisher had terminated and the author had moved on. And the Dutch Anne Frank Foundation had planned to put the text of the diary online, which undermined the revenue of the Swiss rivals. Like, also, it's weird that the foundations that manage Anne Frank copyright in different countries are, like, in a rivalry with each other. They're having a street war. (laughs) Uh, But it was ruled that... Editors are not co-authors. And so Anne Frank's... Of course they're not. Right. Come on. And so Anne Frank's diary is now in the public domain. It is free to download. There is a link in the show notes. There's something like... Copyright laws are already so bizarre and twisted and unnecessarily strict. But there's something extra squicky about trying to make this argument about, like, Anne Frank's diary. You know? Yeah. Trying to keep the revenue created by a Holocaust victim is just extra gross. It's just very weird. Like, you're right. Copyright stuff is so weird. Um, There was a book a few years ago called uh, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind by Ellen Brown, who, full disclosure, is a friend of mine. Um, And it's a deep dive into the writing of Gone with the Wind and then into the sensation that Gone with the Wind became and ultimately the movie and sort of like what happened in the culture around it. But that was the it was like one of the first big international bestsellers. And Margaret Mitchell 
was managing her own copyright, <laughs> like, mm. and her own international rights, because that just re- wasn't really a thing at the time. And there's all this just bonkers stuff in it about how, like, ways that people were trying to screw her with copyright in different countries or editions that they had translated and claiming that they had rights over those editions because they had translated them, even though it was her work. And uh, if you if you want to wonk out about copyright stuff and uh, international copyright and sort of the origins of modern copyright law around books in particular in the U.S., you need to read that. It's just it, it really insane. Uh Every time that something like this comes up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, poor Margaret Mitchell. It was like she was like <laughs> writing letters to people in multiple other countries, just kind of like asking them nicely <laughs> to please, please to not. Right. Like, don't do that or give me some money for it. <laughs> it's also weird. What a weird just this is a weird show. <laughs> this is a weird show. I, let's talk about booze now. OK. Yay. I like booze. Tell about, me about it. Yeah, Barnes and Noble and booze. Uh, so there is a Barnes and Noble location in New Hartford, New York that has apparently applied for a beer and wine license. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the the uh, they're trying to determine whether or not the community is going to be open to that sort of thing. Obviously, most Barnes and Nobles already have the the coffee cafe and mm-hmm. food thing in there now. Um, so the law, uh, a lawyer speaking for Barnes and Noble said that the the alcohol would be served at book readings hosted okay. by the store. Which, um, of course, if you've ever been to a reading, <laughs> alcohol will make it. Tolerable. Not to mention you'll sell more books if you get people a little liquored up first. That's accurate. Yes. Um, The lawyer had to promise to the community (laughs) that the location will not be turning into a bar and or nightclub. (laughs) And he said, this is a great quote. It's not going to change the, wait for it, complexion of the neighborhood. What does that even mean? What does that mean? It's not going to change the complexion of the neighborhood? Well. (laughs) What? Is that? Is he being racist? Like, what is he saying? Are, what is a neighborhood's complexion? Are Literally there, just... Are there what? no other places that serve wine in New Hartford, New York? I don't... I don't understand what that means. The complexion like, of the neighborhood. I don't know what is next to the New Hartford Barnes & Noble. But my Barnes & Noble is next to a Pier 1 uh-huh. and a Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is attached to a mall. Yeah, so. and they definitely serve booze in that chili. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm going to try to give the lawyer, Kevin Dano, the benefit of the doubt and say that he doesn't mean racial stuff by complexion. He means, you know, change how the neighborhood appears to be a fine, upstanding neighborhood. Would be sure. my guess. New Hartford, I think, is a like bedroom community of New York City. Um what a can we say that that's kind of a is that a weird pick for like testing out this idea a bedroom community in new england i I don't know i feel like a bigger store i mean maybe they do i don't know how barnes and noble chooses like pilot locations for things but maybe they do a lot of readings and book club things you know there I would love it if my Barnes and Noble served any kind of wine or, you know, because like yeah. I I do that thing where if I have nothing to do at night, I will go to a bar and read mm-hmm. um, by myself because I'm a dork. But I would love to rather than sit in a bar, go sit in a bookstore. <laughs> that just sounds like more fun to me. Yes. So I'd be here for that. Yeah, I'm here for that, too. My If my Barnes and Noble started... I like I don't I'm not a big fan of readings, but if my yeah, Barnes and Noble just started where like you could just go in and buy a glass of wine, I would go 
we could go together. We live in the same city. We could go and sit at our Barnes and Noble and drink a glass of wine. And that would be lovely. And be so thoroughly ourselves. Right. <laughs> That's called living your best life. I do live my best life. <laughs> Barnes and Noble, I need you to make this happen so I can continue to live my best and life. They're like, it's so it's interesting. This piece in the L.A. Times like uh, is referring to a previous piece from the New Republic. The New Republic notes that Barnes and Noble wouldn't be the first retailer to mix books and booze. There's a place called Book Bar in Denver, which sells Colorado beer and a selection of wine and books. There's a place called Books and Brews in Indianapolis. There is a place in um, I believe it's in Alexandria or near one in one of the D.C. suburbs uh, called One More Page, and they have a whole wine section in the shop, and the booksellers are schooled in wine as well, and you can go in. I've been to the store multiple times, and you can go in and buy books and then tell them, like, my book club is coming over, and we're reading this thing, and I need a nice red, and what do you recommend? And they will recommend things for you. Uh, They have wine tastings. This is not, like, a totally new concept, and if Barnes & Noble wants to... You know, if Barnes and Noble wants to sort of be a community center and have readings and have people want to go spend time in their stores, this seems smart to me. I agree. Um, especially as like merchandising of Barnes and Noble has been changing over the last few years. And if you go in, it's very like toy focused and there are best, lots of bestsellers and like flashy things. And they're not just doing books, but if they want to start selling themselves as a community center, um, that's a thing that Amazon can't do. And that's a nice way to compete, uh, especially lots of places don't have indie bookstores. So if you're uh, if you're Barnes and Noble is the bookseller in a city or a small town, like, why not do it? I'm a fan. Uh, so good luck to that Barnes and Noble in New Hartford, New York. <laughs> and <to the laughs> good dear, luck keeping your complexion. Right. Like who's clutching their pearls about this in New Hartford that resulted in that reassurance that, that the location won't be a bar or a nightclub? <laughs> I just like, like dude, that is said in response to something. Yeah, <laughs> I'd go to a book bar. I know a bookstore to, bar. Totally. I need to know what the precipitating event was. Okay, it's a scene in my mind from Stepford Wives. Like that's <laughs> that's got to be. It's like modern Betty Draper, but Betty Betty would like no a Betty would be fine with it. Yeah, <laughs> Betty would be here for this. So okay, okay. so let's go from booze to coffee. Okay, uh, we talked. Uh, we've talked a lot several times about uh, Chipotle putting literary excerpts and little, you know, two-minute things uh, that authors have written onto their bags and cups. The good folks at Coffee House Press, which is a wonderful independent publisher, are now doing uh, quotes from their stuff on coffee sleeves as a vehicle for literature. It's called the Coffee Sleeve Conversations Project. They plan to um, print about 10,000 sleeves with passages of prose and poetry from local writers of color. Coffee House Press is based in St. Paul, Minnesota. So the sleeves will be distributed then to area coffee shops. If you are in St. Paul and you know of the Workhorse, Workhorse Coffee Bar or Nina's Coffee Cafe, those are the two that are mentioned by name here. So uh, you could find out when this is happening and go get yourself a literary coffee sleeve. Uh, coffee House Press's managing director, Caroline Casey, said that they hope that using a utilitarian medium like coffee sleeves will get customers to reflect on how art and literature can impact their daily lives. Uh, so she says, we believe fervently that art in all forms is a part of daily experience, part of what we've done what we've done in our books in action programming, which this project is a part of, is to create new literary experiences for people that aren't reading. It makes that everyday presence of art and literature visible as well as the artists. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about it <laughs> other than that this is pretty cool. If we could see them, 
but we're not in St. Paul. Yeah, there's a sample one uh, in this piece, and it has a quote from The Late Homecomer by Cal Kalia Young, which says, When dawn steamed in on folds of soft pink, layers of white, a rising blue, they knew they had passed the midway point between the two countries. The old one they loved, where so many had died, and a new one they did not know, where so many would be born. That is nice. And it's intriguing. Now I want to know what that book is about. I wonder what else like the Chipotle two minute thing will bear. Yeah, I was at Chipotle last night, actually. And one of the cups was by Anthony Doerr, Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote, what is it? All the light we cannot see. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, how many a lot of the authors on those cups are like big have been like long running big names that you don't necessarily have to be a a reader or a book person to recognize that name. And Dor was like one of the biggest sellers of the last few years. But within the book community, like if you just stopped a person on the street and said, like, do you know who Anthony Dor is? I don't think that they would really know. Um, so they're branching out into who's doing those Chipotle things. I am genuinely deeply surprised that there hasn't been any like commercial effort tied into that yet. Like QR codes are terrible, but I'm surprised that there's not a QR code on every bag that's like, and scan this to get an excerpt of Anthony Doerr's book. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's a good point. Right, or go to coffeehousepress.org and enter the coupon code coffee sleeve to get 10% off when you buy the book that this excerpt is from or something. Like, I think it's really cool that they're not trying to use it to directly sell books. Um, but but it's, also surprising. Yeah, it does seem surprising, right? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else the Chipotle thing will bring to bear either. It seems like it's not really changing. It's just cups and bags. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe and maybe Jonathan Safran for like made some rules about how he would do that. The, did you get the Franzen cup? I have not had the Franzen cup. It's the best. Is it's it? so scoldy. <laughs> scoldy McScolderson. I'm I still just love the Toni Morrison cup. That's like a thinly veiled. Why am I even doing this? She does not care. <laughs> Toni Morrison has no cares. Zero. But there, like, there's a. I had a Lois Lowry cup once recently. I like her. Like the whole thing I, is cool. It's fun. It's yeah, just it fun. Is. I got a Paolo Cello bag one time. Mm. That was kind of. He's not my favorite. <laughs> no, not so much. I still want to have a books and burritos event. Ooh, I don't really I, know what that is yet. Like every time, I mean, you and I could do it. We could just go read in like a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> well, they serve booze at those, so we're That's set. True. Excellent. Very good. A plus. <laughs> what are you doing this, later? This whole podcast is just Amanda and Rebecca plan their social outings. It doesn't sound terrible, honestly. Uh, okay, so a couple pieces of potpourri. We want to give a shout out to Jean Lewin Young, who is an awesome graphic novelist. He has been appointed by the uh, Library of Congress as the ambassador for young people's literature. And he is the first Asian American to hold, or the first Chinese-American, I know, um, specifically, to hold that position. Have they done a graphic novelist before? No, he's also the first graphic novelist to be so honored. The post was only created in 2008, so it's not like there's a humongous long history of excluding graphic novelists, um, which graphic novelists are are often excluded from many things. Uh, So, you know. They didn't wait too terribly long, uh, but he's been very well recognized for uh, his graphic novel, American Born Chinese, and uh, has received many awards. His other books, Boxers and Saints, uh, were highly regarded as well. He has 
many other titles, um, but very cool. Yeah, I like him. American Born in Chinese is great if you haven't already read it. Yeah, it's a that's a good um, entry point too. I think into graphic novels if you're if you have not read a graphic novel and you're looking for what a representative experience might be like. American Born Chinese is a really good place to start. Yeah. So good job to him and congratulations. It's very cool and good job Library of Congress selecting someone who knows what's going on in young people's literature and is moving the field forward in an interesting way with his work and uh, reaching broad audiences. We Thumbs have up. a few more minutes. Where do you wish to go? Mm, ah, choices. Let's talk about the vending machine. Okay. This thing is weird. <laughs> <laughs> But cool. I don't know. Okay, hold on. I'm pulling up the article because I don't remember where it is. So it's in Germany. A German trade publisher has teamed up with a book retailer. I'm not going to try and pronounce the names of either of these things. Um, to give you a way of getting rid of your unwanted Christmas presents, they've set up a vending machine um, out, which sits outside of the bookstore branches in Munich. And they're going to be a couple more in a few other cities um, where you can dump unwanted presents that you got for the holidays and <laughs> exchange it for a free book. And then all the unwanted presents will be given to local charities. <laughs> so there's a picture here of the of the vending machine. And it really is just like there's a slot where you stick the present you don't want and then a book pops out. Mm -hmm. And then you go on about your way. It's uh, seven frontless titles by best-selling authors. Uh, including Rebecca Gable and Ethan Cross. I don't recognize those names, but perhaps they are big in Germany. Hmm. <laughs> this is just like, this is pretty fun and smart. Um, I also have questions like, <laughs> yeah. did the publishers pay to have these titles be the ones that go in this promotion? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this like, give us the tie your kid gave you that you don't want and get one of our bestsellers? <laughs> Which, like, also, that's fine. It's free books for people. How do you know that people are giving you don't. presents? Like, you how don't. do you know it's not just garbage? Is there, I mean, this vending machine, quote unquote, thing is like a huge setup. It's taller than a person. So I read in the, I read the comments because I'm silly. <laughs> and one of the comments says, there's probably a real human inside of it. Because, like, how else do you know that they're not just shoving garbage into the thing in exchange for Oh, it's books? probably the honor system. Like, this just mm. looks like a giant box. I don't think there's a real human, like, sitting in there all day. Maybe. <laughs> there might be. It's big enough. There could be a person in there taking, like, your your blunder that you don't need and giving you a, a bestseller. You know what I think? Like, uh, hopefully people aren't putting garbage yeah. in it. But if you're that, if you really want a free book... Also, like, this is a, I can get okay enough with people abusing this system to get a free book. <laughs> <laughs> like, I suppose. Like, whatever the publishers are doing here, they're see if the publishers are involved, they must see it as a publicity spend. You yeah. know, like, we'll put our, the book covers are on the outside of this big box where you exchange your thing. So they're getting publicity. These books are getting into the hands of people who want a free book, ostensibly to read it. Hmm. I mean, whatever. If you're taking an old coffee mug out of your kitchen and trading that in, that's not in the spirit of the thing. Yeah. Don't yeah. do that thing. But I sincerely doubt there's a person just sitting in this box. <laughs> I hope that if there is one, that person is dressed like Buddy the Elf. I want there to be. I want there to be. Yes. I want Buddy <laughs> the Elf to be inside this box. 
taking people's unwanted stuff and giving them books instead. <laughs> That's what I want. It's like a Christmas version of hysterical literature. <laughs> You're a bookish elf. <laughs> Bye, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is going to listen to this and be like, I'm never going out of town. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't away, believe you think there's a person sitting in there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. I'm just saying it's possible. <laughs> okay. Last story. Of, I have to move on because I just keep looking at the picture of this giant box, imagining someone like sitting in there all day with a little hot plate and like packages of food to keep them going. Um, this is an interesting moment for methodology corner where we're going to go. Um, two professors have used text analysis that looks for sentimental words, uh, basically words that are coded as being emotional or sentimental pieces of vocabulary. They've looked at over 2,000 novels that were published in the last half century um, that were labeled according to a variety of categories, bestsellers, prize winners, books reviewed in the New York Times, most widely held books in libraries, and books from popular genre categories like romance, sci-fi, young adult, and mysteries. Um, and what they are trying to determine is whether commercially successful fiction and commercial fiction, stuff that's marketed to be genre or for a commercial audience, actually are different in the language that they use, more sentimental than the prize winners and literary fiction. So they um, put the text of all of these books, um, these 2,000 books, into their analysis that looked for these specific words that are coded as being sentimental to find out. Uh, and they came up with like an overall ranking of sentimentality for each book um, and then looked at their categories and tried to find out, like, are romances more sentimental than Charles Dickens? Uh, so to give you an idea of what the difference is like, um, because they did see uh, that like 19th century novels had more sentimental language than contemporaries, that kind of thing. Um, the 19th century novels account for just sentimental vocabulary in 19th century novels account for just under 7% of all the words in a given novel. For prize-winning fiction from the past decade, so really recent by contrast, that number is about 5.5%. So for a given novel that has 100,000 words, which is about the length of Pride and Prejudice, a reader will encounter on average 1,500 more sentimental words, or 7.5 more per page, in 19th century fiction like Dickens, Mary Shelley, Anthony Trollope, Emily Bronte, than in a prize-winning novel from the last decade. That's an enormous difference from a yes. reader's perspective. So there's, they're not noting here if this is a statistically significant difference, but that is a big, just, you know, the baseline numbers are a big difference. So they're saying one could see our current antipathy to sentimentality as a longstanding reaction to a distinct moment, distinct moment in the novel's history when emotion reigned. Fiction is different now than it was in the 19th century. Uh, the other noticeable feature is that it's not well sorted according to distinctions of high and low categories. Some popular genres, romance, science fiction, um, do use sentimentality to a higher degree than the so-called highbrow novels, um, like those reviewed in the New York Times or those that win uh, literary prizes. But it's not much more. Romances only use about 0.75% more sentimental words than prize winners, or that's about three to four words per page more. Um, so... 
That's really surprising to me. Yeah. Considering that, like, romances exist for the purpose of being <laughs> kind of sentimental, you know? Yeah, it's it's, re- it's really interesting. And the piece gives more examples about what sentimental words are. Uh, but sentimentality will strike you from the list of 20th century classics. Uh, so the list of 400 most widely held novels in libraries since 1945 do not exhibit significantly lower levels of sentimentality. The more constrained list of the 60 or so most canonical novels, though, do show more restrained language um, when it comes to using a sentimental vocabula- vocabulary. Words are authors by like Toni Morrison, Susan Sontag, Don DeLillo, Kurt Vonnegut, Joan Didion, Ralph Ellison, among others. Uh, So it works out to three or four fewer sentimental words per page, which is about the same difference as the difference between prize winning novels and romances. Um, And they go into it, they do a lot more analysis. And they say like this sentiment analysis is by no means a perfect science. This is a blunt tool for something Mm -hmm. that's very complex. Um, But at stake is something fundamental, um, the development of tools and techniques that can be used to confirm or refute widely held ideas about cultural practices. Um, Because people, I think if you asked a general person who thinks about books in some way, or like say an average person who cares enough about books to be reading several of them per year and participating in a book club, they would guess that commercial and popular fiction is more sentimental than prize winning, you know, sorts of stuff um, in a significant way. But this seems to not mean that. It says, our advice to writers is based on the available evidence. If you want to write one of the 50 most important novels in the next half century, by all means, avoid sentimental language. But if you want to get published, sell books, be reviewed, win a prize, or simply make someone happy, then emote away and just write a good novel. (laughs) Hear, hear. (laughs) Yes. Hear, hear. It's interesting. I think this has interesting applications, especially because fiction that's perceived as sentimental often gets sold as fiction for women. And then fiction that women write is more likely, I would guess, to be perceived as sentimental because women are perceived as, you know, having more feelings and being, quote unquote, better at feelings and emotion uh, than men are. So you could start to untangle this and apply the idea to some interesting things. Like what if they just did this sentiment analysis on contemporary fiction uh, by male and female writers would be interesting. And it, it, it's interesting to me the, the difference between how sentimental like Victorian literature actually is compared to modern literature. Because when people talk about, you know, I don't read contemporary stuff. I only read the classics mm. because that's real and serious and <laughs> thought provoking and all that stuff. And like, well, in reality, it's mostly just about crying. <laughs> And, you know, like extreme emotional manipulation. That's what Dickens was here for. He wanted to emotionally manipulate you so that you would care about poor people. Like that's Right. There is that like posturing about like, I only read the classics. Yeah. Well, that means probably that you only read like sentimental. Right. You have way more feelings than you think you do. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Feel your feels, man. (laughs) Very cool. I don't have any major qualms with this. They lay out like and acknowledge a lot of the limitations of the methods that they used within the piece. I think it has a lot of potential interesting, really, uh, a really interesting potential uses in the future, especially as science of textual analysis gets better and what software can do gets better. Uh, But cool to see that happening. So there's a link to the full story from the New Republic uh, in the show notes if you are interested also in, in thinking about those things. 
Amanda, I think that's our show this week. Tis. Thank you for joining me. And thank you to our sponsors. This is where it ends. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And also thanks to Harry's. You can go to harrys.com and use the promo code book uh, to get a deal on your starter pack. Uh, You will be able to find show notes for this and all other episodes at bookriot.com slash podcast. If you've got a thought or a question for us, you can hit us up at podcast at bookriot.com or talk to us on Twitter. I am Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Amanda's handle is I'm Amanda Nelson, no apostrophe, because as Jeff frequently notes, Twitter uh, hates the apostrophe. Of course, Book Riot is all over the place at Book Riot on all of your social media selection platform thingamajigger whatevers. Uh, If you've got a minute to rate or review the show on iTunes, we certainly appreciate that. And we will be back next week. Have a good one. (laughs) 